Trauma-Informed Caring and Essential Conversations podcast, brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. As we begin this episode of Trauma-Informed Caring, we want to acknowledge that the content in this podcast has the potential to be activating for your stress response. And so we're going to begin this episode as we begin every episode with a brief grounding practice. And today we've invited one of our guests to lead that for us. Hello. As we get started for today, I want you to take a big breath in your nose and you're going to release out your mouth. I'm going to do this two times. Big breath in. About three seconds. Three. Blow out. One more time. Big breath in your nose. Blow out your mouth. Wherever you are, I would like to invite you to just stretch your body a bit. Some of us may be sitting down. Just rotate. Pull it. Rotate your neck. You can move your arms and stretch your arms out a little bit. Always extremely helpful. And to, and if you would like, bring your eyes to a close or just a central point, lower your gaze. I'm going to take another big breath in the nose. Really out the mouth. And I want us to just be still for a minute. I'm going to take about one minute. And as we get into this practice of stillness, I'm going to incorporate some imagery. I want you to think about the best place you've ever been, best place you've ever been. As you breathe, we're going to shift everything into our imagery. I want you to really focus on what you see. Who's around? What's around you? We want to bring back, bring back that feeling of that positivity from wherever we were at. If you're on the beach, I want you to take that breath and just really take in the sense of smell. Really remember what it smelled like. Is there anything that you can touch that brings back that memory? I'm going to think on what made this place so positive for us. Really dive into it. Picturing people, the smiles on their faces, what their hair looked like what food you had and tasted. Take another breath and release. In the nose, out the mouth. We're gonna come back, open our gaze, right? Real slowly, back from our place. But still hold on to those feelings of positivity. Thank you. And I'm Andrea Dalton. And I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. We are so glad you've joined us for this season of Trauma-Informed Caring, where we're exploring the intersection of trauma-informed care and diversity, equity, inclusion, access, justice, everything that goes along with that. And I'll just remind our listeners that our mission for this podcast is centered on exploring varied perspectives. And so this season in particular, I think, really is going to uh, touch on that. And we're excited for the conversation we're going to have today with our guests as we nurture knowledge and inspire courage for practical transformative action. So I am going to just pass it over to our guests for a moment to introduce themselves and uh, tell us just, you know, what who you are, what you're doing in the world, and uh, anything you'd like to share, and then we'll we'll dive into our conversation. We heard from Akeem in our opening mindfulness, so I think I'll start with 
Akeem, if you'd like to introduce yourself so everyone knows who they just heard, and then we'll pass it over to Dr. Jones. Yes. Uh, So my name is Akeem Kearns, and I am the VP for Campfire. And so we do a lot of work in before and after scare uh, programming. We also work with uh, youth involved in the justice system, and we're really big on our social emotional learning and how we intertwine that our curriculum. Over the years, I've done a lot of work in trauma-informed care, conscious discipline, a lot of uh, social emotional uh, modalities. Uh, and so also having a, a lot of experience in direct care and what that looks like, largely serving uh, marginalized uh, populations. And so that's what I do and what I've done for a long time. And I'm excited to be here and share some of that knowledge that I have with people and what that looks like. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And then Dr. Marvia Jones, take a moment to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Marvia Jones. I am the health director for the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department. We have a number of direct services around immunizations and just general health promotion, but we also um, have a violence prevention program that seeks to apply a trauma-informed lens to how we work with people who have been impacted by violence in some way. So really happy to be here today. We are so glad to have each of you here. And I am going to ask this first question, and either one of you can choose to answer It really is about the ways that you have seen or experienced trauma-informed caring. So having that lens that Dr. Jones, Marvia, that you just mentioned, uh, intersecting with the work that is being done in the area of, in the areas of justice and belonging and accessibility and including others in equity in in diversity, those very important initiatives and the ways we're wanting to transform society. How do you see the two intersecting? And you can answer this either professionally or personally, because we know it's all connected. So any thoughts on that, either one of you? Yeah, I can take some of that. I will say having experienced and worked in many different fields, largely with youth uh, that experience trauma, primarily out of Kansas City. So I've worked in child welfare, so children's division. I work with DYS, so uh, Divinity Services, those are your juvenile youth. When we're talking diversity and inclusion and seeing it through that trauma lens, uh, it's definitely at the forefront for certain populations versus others. Our youth or our people who are have been in children's division, partner with domestic violence and or uh, mental health, they get a lot of services. Like people generally care about the trauma that they've been through, right? It's, it's not looked at as something that they have chosen. Uh, when it comes to our youth who are people who have been involved in uh, alleged criminal offenses, so our young people in the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. uh, they don't get the same grace, right? They don't get the same grace. They can mm-hmm. have the same background, uh, same type of parents. But if this kid uh, in his response to trauma uh, decides to go and steal a car, they don't care. Like you stole the car. And as we're talking about organizations, it's, it's very at the forefront uh, when you talk about organizations that serve youth who've been involved in uh, criminal offenses. Um, there's not many resources out there for them once they are out of a program or released. Still battle that stigma of being a criminal, right? They still battle that stigma of you're doing something wrong, you are wrong. And so they don't get that lens. They don't get the grace that's provided that we will provide uh, a kid who's been in children's division, right? Who went out and struck a teacher. These kids don't get that same grace. They don't get uh-huh. the same grace. And uh, it's really, it's really apparent. Thank you. Yeah. So that is an obvious shortcoming, right? In the work yeah. that we don't seem to, I'm saying we kind of inclusively, we as caregivers, as workers don't seem to be able to deliver the same grace to someone once they've crossed a certain line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really unfortunate. It's and, heartbreaking. Yeah. And we when we're talking about uh, our systems of our, our structural systems uh that are put into place, you know, we got people that go to school for criminology and things like that. So we would hope to have a certain understanding. And that's why I think it's really important. You know, we work with university health 
yourself and you all um, to provide some of this information to our staff so they have a better understanding, right, from the top down, from uh, the people serving the youth, uh, so that they can respond to these to these uh, young people who also see that, <laughs> who also see that uh, they're not getting much help, right? Mm-hmm. People don't really care. And this is something that's echoed from them as well. Like, don't nobody care. They care what I've been through, going through. I don't see a whole lot left for me, right? Yeah. And they don't make a change. Uh, and some of our systems perpetuate that for them, i.e. some of the past information, the school to prison pipeline, mm-hmm. right? And so our young people who come from inner city, inner city school, inner city environments that have young people who experience higher trauma, they still see a lot of a lot of suspensions, a lot of expulsions. It's just not treated the same. And so our schools are trying to get wrapped around that a little bit more nowadays, mm-hmm. it seems like. But, you know, we we still struggle with that, really trying to break that school to prison pipeline. So uh, some of that is just, uh, you know, again, understanding trauma and understanding where people come from. So it's just been one of those difficult things that I've, you know, for myself being like, I'm going to combat this. Like, I'm going to teach this. We're going to do this. I'm going to teach these skills. We're going to do this uh, as an organization because I understand what it looks like and some of the barriers. And so I try to pass that along wherever I go. Yeah, Yeah, I appreciate that you're framing it actually, at least as I'm listening, as an opportunity. And I want to circle back to that. I don't want to put you on the spot. I give you a moment to think if you have any suggestions for our listeners, how they can help overcome that because I have seen that in a lot of places. So be thinking about that while I ask Marvia, uh, if you, what ways do you see trauma-informed care and uh, intersecting with the work you're doing in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging, and access? Yeah, I had a feeling Akeem was going to go really deep. And so I <laughs> purpose even, no, I appreciate that because mm-hmm. he says many of the things that I've seen, but I think about it from the perspective of people walking into the building. So the mm-hmm. people that we serve here at the health department, one of the biggest takeaways I had in probably 2018 or 2019 when I did the training with you all around trauma-informed care was just around like the look and feel of your space and the the noise levels and how many people greet someone and, you know, do they feel this sense of loss being lost or out of place when they show up? And so I've, that has lived like in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. years. And so in my role where I'm directing, not just the staff, but I, you know, I'm really trying to impart to staff the importance of things like, okay, we're going to change the way that our atrium looks. The first person they meet is not going to be the security guard. Security guard should not be, be the first person you meet to tell you where to go to get your medical records or your, you know, Agreed. Your vaccination. Mm-hmm. And so These are all like tangible things, especially because I know that the people coming through my door, I know the the general socioeconomic status that they're in. I know that there are aspects of their lives that they don't feel like they have a lot of control over. Um, They are used to being overexposed to law enforcement. They are used to being treated without a lot of dignity and respect. So when they come to the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department, I want them to have a more dignified welcome and I want them to feel valued. And so customer service and how staff talk to them is a whole nother ball game that we've been working on. But even that tangible look and feel of the space, I I think about from a trauma-informed lens. I love that. And to me, that really speaks to creating a space where people can feel like they belong, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's their health department. Mm -hmm. They have a right to be here. They deserve the services that the city has created for its population, right? Instead of I'm coming in and automatically I'm in trouble. Like, right, there's there's someone who has a uniform right there and I'm already on the defensive. Yeah. Explain yourself. Yeah. What are you doing here? (laughs) Versus welcome. We're here to serve, right? Like, come on in. How can we help? Thank you. Thank you. Thinking about that, it kind of makes me also think about bias, right? We all have implicit bias. It's part of being human. You know, we have these uh, habits of thinking. And I I think that um, is, I can see what you've done as one way to counteract that bias, right? We're not assuming that people are coming in here with uh, Uh, the need to be controlled by a security officer, right? We're actually assuming better intent, right? 
Are there some other ways that either of you have tried to counteract bias, either against those you serve or against those you serve alongside? I know sometimes society has a certain bias against those of us who work with different people groups. Mm-hmm. Um, has there any any way that you've noticed bias showing up and, and anything you're doing to counteract that? Yeah, I know um, one of the things and the young people that we work with, I'm always challenging our staff, challenging our staff, challenging people to think of different situations. Like I said, I have a number of young people who come from criminal offenses. Um, So when we get into these situations, if you were just to read the sheet, you probably wouldn't give this young person a chance. When you read, okay. uh, when you read assault with deadly weapon, uh, armed, armed robbery, uh, battery, you know, like when you read the sheet, sometimes you don't give that person a chance, but they're still human. And mm-hmm. one thing that I understand is most of these kids are still good kids, right? They're still good mm-hmm. people. And when we're talking about dealing with trauma, some of this, you know, some of their actions is a result of trauma. So I'm always challenging people, um, challenging my staff to see something different from other people. I love for people to to try other cultures. Um, and this can be, and this can be done in a variety of ways, especially our society, watching certain certain documentaries, right? Reading certain books. Uh, as you engage in your work with people, if you have people that are not where you're from culturally, ask them in a respectful way about their culture, right? About things that help them grow and be different. Uh, some of our experiences are the same, but they're also different. I talked to a young person, Hispanic young man. I said, you know, we're sharing experiences, and I grew up in poverty. And I'm like, you know what it's like to just have, you know, grilled cheese and tomato soup, and that's just all you got in the house. And he's like, no, we had quesadillas, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> and I'm like, right, <laughs> right. They didn't have, right, he's from Mexico. They didn't have, that's, grilled cheese was a thing. They did quesadillas, right? But we still can connect. Um, and just remembering people are human. I think, you know, that's the biggest thing. Everybody is human. And one of my, one of my old directors would always say, if this was your child, how would you treat them? Mm-hmm. If this was your cousin's or sister's child, how would you treat them? You know, and that helps bring stuff back to like, this is a human being. This is somebody you should care for. So those are some things that I have. Yeah, um, I would add to that, you know, I to Akeem's point, especially around people you wouldn't expect. So I'm always thinking about the unexpected um, so whether that comes to who we have for positions, um, who we promote into leadership here at the health department, I am very blessed to have a supportive, you know, city leadership that believes in valuing people, giving people second chances for whatever, but also elevating. Uh, so sometimes the tendency can be for people who maybe don't have an advanced degree or they, you know, have always worked in sort of service oriented positions to not see some of them as leaders in in an environment like ours. And so being very intentional in leadership around, no, I expect you to give everyone a shot. Everyone interviews, you know, if they're interested in a role. And then we give them feedback, whether they got the position or not. We give them feedback about what they can do to improve. And, you know, even when it comes to pay, I'm really fascinated by this idea of talking about equity and health equity and inclusion but realizing that some of those very same organizations may not be applying those principles internally. Um, I let that never be said of the health department. So we can't be talking about the economic outcomes related to health um, and how they influence people's health without making sure that we're avoiding the same bias that causes you to underpay staff. So you hear me talk about pay a lot, you know, it's because it is such a key barometer to me of how people are really living their values. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And actually, just recently, I've had several conversations with people in a few different contexts about pay equity and the way that we, especially in social service, health healthcare, uh, we're, we're pretty good at applying those principles around trauma-informed care and equity in the services we provide publicly. And we're not necessarily doing it consistently (laughs) internally. And 
like the disconnect that that has then for the staff. This is a value of our organization, like question mark at the end of that statement. We see it as we're providing services, but we're not feeling it as members in that system. And then the kind of, oh, I don't know, it's like an inner conflict that we might have then around like, do I keep, do I stay here and continue to contribute to this system that is doing these kinds of things to my coworkers, to my friends, (laughs) to myself? Yeah, it's it, an interesting point. So yeah, I'm really glad you brought that brought that up. It's, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, again, I primarily serve young people uh, throughout my experience, and you know, organizations have really bold missions and visions, and this is how we serve our clients. But in places, how they treat their staff just doesn't align with uh, trauma informed care. Although that's like the lens that they're trying to look through in serving their clients. Um, you know, I work in a lot of places that are like highly traumatizing, right? Secondary and vicarious oh, yes. trauma, right? Uh, working with children's division, working in detention centers, working with those marginalized populations. Um, you hear a lot of stuff. And the grace for companies to provide reprieve for people, right? I was in this position last year and I would tell my staff, if you're not in a mental place, when you come in here, a safe mental place, let me know and I'll, I'll let you go home, right? I'll let you go home. Like, wow. this is not, I don't want you working around kids and you are thinking about your own baby and this and this and this going home and, right, because you're not focused, right? This is just human. And if it was me, I want to go home and take care of my child. Right. Right. But also still get paid. Like, let me like this is the other thing. Like, you're going to go home and I'm not, not going to just I'm I'm going to provide you those hours still. Right. I'm not just making short for two days. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's human. And that is trauma informed caring. Right. I understand what it looks like and we understand what it looks like. And if people are in a position uh, to provide that then provide it. And I understand policies and things like that, but trauma-informed caring, right? If you understand, right? If you've ever had a sick child, then you understand what a sick child looks like, mm-hmm. right? And sick baby looks different from a sick 16-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Those are different things. Yeah. And so talking about, you know, right, things being just or equitable, right? There's some difference there. Like there's some difference in there. And it's really important. I think that, you know, companies do from from the top down. And I think that's the biggest disconnect, right? Is top down to the people who are providing those services directly to the people, right? The client. And there's a disconnect in many organizations. There's a disconnect, right? When your top brass tells tells you to, we're open and you're going to come in on the snow day, but they're at home and you got to now navigate, right? right. And yes. so you create mm-hmm. that, right? You create that system and you support that system like that versus being like, or not even including the staff in that conversation. You know, those are different things that I think of. So until you made that last point, I was thinking to myself, like, I think that a lot of that doesn't come necessarily from a bad place. So let me finish this thought and then I'll tag into what you just said, because I was thinking about how, you know, so many of the services we provide, like in the organizations that we're all working in, we have that, that stance of compassion for those that we serve. And so for a long time, and I know this was embedded in me and like the culture I was brought up in and my family and everything is that compassion means that you sacrifice everything about yourself for the other person. I don't think that that's actually true. Uh, and I think, Roxanne, I'm sure you have strong words about that, too. But that's like what a lot of us have been taught. And I think that that's embedded in a lot of our organizations. <laughs> and then it, and then you made that point, Akeem, about like the highest levels of the organization. And uh, yes, yeah, the self-compassion might exist a little more there than it does extended to those who are on the front lines. And yeah. that's a really important an important thing to look at when we're talking about how do we make our organizations more equitable, inclusive, trauma-informed, all that. Others of you have things to say about that. Yeah. So, Well, I was just thinking as you talked about what we're really discussing is dominant cultural norms, right? Like right. there's this 
cultural norm, if you will, that overwork really not just not just work, but overwork is success, is good, is honorable, is valued. And then the people who make it to the highest echelon get, you know, benefits that truly they might not even need as much as the people on the front line need them, you know? So it's, it's, it's not equitable. And one thing you spoke to Akeem was the way that you're being actually countercultural in being trauma informed. You're saying you matter. You're a valuable part of the staff. You have a sick child. You deserve to go home and be with that child. And you also deserve to keep getting paid because maybe you're not on salary, right? Maybe it's an hourly person, but a salaried person, right? Might be able to still get paid and be at home with their kid as long as they're getting some work done, right? So there's that inequity there. And so you're in a position of power to be able to do that. Not everyone is. So first of all, I I applaud that. And second, I see that what you're doing is actually fighting that dominant cultural norms of, you know, show up and shut up. (laughs) You You gotta be here. Customer needs to be taken care of. Client needs to be taken care of. And then to what Andrea said, to be able to to give compassion, I, I think compassion many times in our culture is de- defined as selflessness, right? Mm-hmm. To, to the point where you, like you said, give up everything that you need, sacrifice all your needs, even your health, right? And that cannot be sustained, no. right? You must have a self <laughs> to be able to serve. And so we're also fighting that dominant cultural norm, which says, give to the point of exhaustion and and then you'll get a gold star, right? (laughs) Um, So I'm kind of wondering, you both are in positions where you have some power to change policy. Um, What kinds of other things are you doing? Um, Do you have anything you would like to share with us, Dr. Jones, that maybe the health department is doing? I know you're fairly new to your position there too. So you're probably bringing in a lot of new ideas and energy. Uh, What's going on over there? If I could, I just wanted to say something on your topic of people being in a position. And it's it's interesting to me, you know, between what you said, Roxanne and Akeem, about the making these accommodations. I think about how it just hit me like I can't let the moment pass. Like when I was in grad school for my um, public health program, my advisor, you know, we're in that position. You have no benefits. Right. <laughs> you're paid, you know, half a salary a year. You're mm-hmm. just you're, I, I was, I'm about to say the S word, but you're, it's not slavery, <laughs> but it's, you're, you're not well supported. So yeah, uh, to find yourself, you know, my husband and I, we found out we were expecting our first kid while I'm in the middle of this. Hmm. Here I wow. am working, you know, 40 something, 50 hour weeks paid for half of that. And, you know, once it was time to have the baby, you know, to have a mentor, um, have a, a boss basically who said to me, look, I'll make a way for you to be home and just kind of, you know, um, sort of work from this is work from this is 2012. When we weren't talking about work from home the way we are now. And for uh-huh. some say to me, the policy, the system we're in does not really allow what I'm going to try to do, but I'm going to make it work for you hmm. because I believe you should have this. And that's why I'm here. Wow. That's why I'm here today in wow. this chair. And I just, it just, I mean, that is, that cannot be discounted. You know, I, I talk to my staff a lot about, we know about the type of system where, or the, the institution and how it is impacted by bias and systemic racism and all these other things that are going on. But to the greatest extent that we can, we should be actively every day working against them. You know, so just, it just, you just y'all took me back to what's mm-hmm. like, that's the reason I stayed and graduated uh, was because I was able to take eight weeks off after I had my kid and be home with them. So, um, and Marvia, the ripple effect of that. So one person who was your supervisor made that decision, which enabled you and empowered you to do what you needed to do. And now look at what you are doing, how you're showing up in the world and all the different lives you're impacting. I mean, I don't know that we often think about how much power we hold when we Mm -hmm. make those seemingly um, small decisions, not small, but seemingly for seemingly one person. Oh my gosh, the ripples. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly why I had it. <laughs> so to your question about what we're doing at the health department. Um, yeah, I've been here for almost a year and we continue to just talk about um, making these small changes. So the accommodations around um, people who need to work from home sometimes and mm-hmm. introducing that and becoming more comfortable with that and 
um, giving people time. So for instance, our violence prevention team, we know that there are people who are encountering violence within their own families, the impact of violence in their own families, as well as the clients that they serve. So we have set aside time for them to just have time away. We've given them extra hours off, you know, almost like hazard pay for them to deal with what they have to deal with, you know, and and they have just been happy about that. Like, I can't, we're not the fire department. I can't pay you like the fire department, but to the extent possible, let's give you some extra time off. So um, another program might look at that and say, well, what about us? But equity is not everybody having the same thing. It's, giving people what they need to have right? uh, considering their circumstances. And so that's just one example of something we've kind of institutionalized, you know, to work around system constraints uh, to support people. Yeah. Yeah. And that is compassion, right? True, equitable practice. That is compassion in action. I mean, that's looking at the needs of the person, of the human being, going back to what Akeem was talking about earlier. You know, seeing each person as a human with needs and what can we do to support we do? to support them right now? What what is needed and what can I do? You know, what is mine to contribute here? Am I the right person even? I mean, asking that question too, like, do I need to pull in somebody else here or am I equipped to provide whatever in this moment? I think those are always good, like self-reflection questions too in those moments too. I've been thinking about that a lot. Attended a webinar recently, read a lot of books. <laughs> That's my usual. But just having those moments of thinking like, what is mine to contribute? How am I elevating others' needs and also taking into account what my needs are in those interactions too? I mean, uh, because like Roxanne said, it's not about like getting rid of yourself. <laughs> because if you do, you won't be there anymore <laughs> to contribute. So um, yeah. we always have to be kind of balancing that it's a it is a balance and I think it it does take things like mindfulness and paying attention and and being intentional with self-care practices with you know going back to the basics of like connecting with other people moving getting nutritious foods you know all of those kinds of things that we tout this is what we need to do but it really I mean they really are important for our brain health and then how we can show up for other people so it really it really is important I think um you know, that's some good stuff, Dr. Jones, I think over there. When I got here at Campfire, we had a staff have some car issues. And this is when I was like, okay, we're on the same page. Our director was like, we need to look into, we need to look into and actually try to follow through. Uh, but we need to look into roadside assistance. Forget what it's called off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But we need to look into roadside assistance for staff because that could be a benefit, right? We got staff out here that are already part-time. So, you know, this might just be a little something for someone, right? Because now if she could just call our roadside assistance, get her tire fixed, and, you know, maybe she still don't make it to work, but at least that's one less thing off her plate, right? It's right. one less thing off of her plate, Um you know, we're talking about things that we do. And again, I'm, you know, blessed to serve young people, provide them. One of the things I, I started with my young people is just some wellness, right? What is it like to be well in your spirit, right? We, they get a lot of information about nutrition and like physical exercise. But what about your mental? Like, is your mental okay? How do you check in on your emotions? How do you navigate through your emotions? And so one of the things, you know, we would put on our Wellness Wednesdays and we started that and really focused on breathing and, you know, navigating emotions and heavy emotions as well. We also transformed some stuff in our language and how we address kids and what we address kids about. Um, understanding that cussing is not the biggest deal for some people, right? And for some parents. Now, if you harp on them and you turn and, and you turn their day into a terrible day, right? You know, not liking the program or whatever the case may be, when at home their parents don't even mind their language, right? Then you've just created something that you didn't necessarily need to have. Uh, and then again, just challenging what we say. So I love a, a strengths-based approach as well right so reframing and reshaping some of those some of those words 
right? You're a tattletale, right? You are, you are defiant. And I say, now this kid just really holds strong to his beliefs. And he's not, you know, he has, he just holds strong beliefs. Not tattletale. They just have a passion for everybody doing what's right. It's not a tattletale. It has a passion for doing what's right. And he's going to let somebody know. He's advocating for the rules and, and for justice right now, right? So just, Helping staff understand to like reshape what they're saying, what they see, um, because it can be seen as a strength. And as I talk with our young people who are just as involved, it's one of those things where we don't see them as having strengths. Mm -hmm. Well, this kid was really hustling, right? We're going to say hustling. But this kid was really hustling. He wasn't going to school, but he was taking care of the household. Right. That's a strength. At 14, to take care of the household, to help get bills paid, to help do, right? And we think about, you know, I did a lot of work one year with the immigrant population and what that looks like for them and just understanding some of those dynamics. And although I'm not an immigrant myself and I can never like fully understand some of that stuff, just understanding some of those situations, like, uh, and I think we addressed it a little bit uh, in some of the training uh, but what what that burden looks like on a young person coming into, you know, Dr. Jones coming into the health clinic. Right. And the parent doesn't understand English. But now we're trying to hit them with all these words that at, that at 11 years old, they're expected to be able to translate. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a good position for the young person. Right. And then some things might be lost in translation. So just even understanding some of those little things. And so I'm like all of our stuff, our curriculum, if it goes out to parents. If it's on a website, we need to be able to put it in another language. This is basic. Like it's <laughs> right there. I one think of the that's populations here. So it's yeah. so powerful. I mean, it's basic, but it's not. It's like saying something's simple, but it's not easy, right? Like <laughs> right. I that's right. really, really appreciate that, Akeem. And it takes me back to when I worked on inpatient behavioral health. Uh, years ago when it was Truman Medical Centers and my colleague and I were sitting in a meeting. It was, it was like a treatment planning meeting. So m- different members of the, of the medical team. And they were talking about a particular patient who had been behaving in ways that were um, disruptive, you know, like um, stealing food and um, being very demanding with staff and other patients. And there was a lot of frustration being expressed and negativity. And my colleague said, I just, think this person is such an expert in getting what they need. I I see this person has such determination and persistence and like everything they were framing negatively. And we'd all been trained in trauma-informed care, but we're human, right? So everything that they've been kind of complaining about, she just kept turning it into, aren't they incredible? Isn't this amazing? How well they have learned to survive. And so then that really shifted the feeling from we are dealing with not victims of mental illness. We are dealing with powerful survivors who are resourceful. And how can we look at their strengths, right? And how can we explain to them, you don't have to threaten us. We will give you another sandwich. We will, all you have to do is ask. Like you're change the the dialogue, at least right here, maybe outside the walls, we can't control what you have to do to survive. But in here, if you want a second or third or fourth sandwich, just ask and we are happy to give it to you. And then that shifted you know, once we could look at them as humans who have strengths, who are surviving and resourceful and all those things, our attitude changes. And then guess what? Their attitude toward cha- changes, you know, towards us. And so suddenly we have a lot less uh, violent behavior. And I asked you at the beginning, you know, what are some things that you could suggest to change this um, situation where we don't give that trauma-informed lens of, of grace to youth and adults involved in the justice system? You know, and I think you've kind of answered it in a couple ways. Uh, the question, if this was your child or your sister's child, how would you treat them? Yeah. I think is one way. And then the second thing you've just talked about, changing the language, see their strengths, find a way to frame it. Because sometimes they even for themselves have never been told that those are strengths. Right. You know, they might come in saying, I know I'm such a whatever. And you can say, well, or you could look at it this way, you know, and then we could give them a whole new perspective on who they are. And so I think you've answered a couple of times, but now that you've had a, a few minutes to think, is there anything else that comes to mind really for either of you, how we can help ourselves have that trauma-informed lens when we're looking at older, like youth or adults who have done things that are harmful, 
Um, how can we, you know, hold our awareness of the behavior while still giving grace to the human? Any other thoughts or practices? I, yeah, um, I think that's a very important question to keep centered. You know, uh, I think that one way that I have tried to do that, and I'm not perfect by any means, like you said, we're all still human. You know, you hear about what someone has done. It's like, oh my goodness, I, how do I behave around someone? You know, like I, I still deal with that sometimes. But when I'm conscientious, um, I try to see them as a child. I try to not see them as, okay, they're like childlike right now, but to see and imagine what they were like as a child. Like this is someone, what must have these eyes seen before? For like, like you say, for, for them to be reacting in this way to situations, because we we sometimes have colorful activities at the health department when, when people don't get their way. Um what must they have seen in their lives or why is this behavior necessary to them in their minds? Some, you know, maybe, you know, oh, long, yeah. time ago, long time ago, this was shaped, their behavior was shaped in this way. And so that helps me not be like in the mode of this full grown person is acting like this. And, you know, they're choosing to be this way. I, I, I do. I, you know, the only thing that I have really been able to, to do so far is to try to imagine them. Imagine this was that seven-year-old, eight-year-old seeing something or being shaped in a way that that's the only thing that they are, they know how to be. Yeah. That is a powerful that's, practice. Yeah, that's a strong, that's a strong thing. You know, I think um, in my line, we're working with young people, uh, especially our young people who are uh, just as involved um, you know, and me and Mrs. Uh, Dalton talk, you know, pretty regularly. I have 12-year-old kids, like really gang affiliated. And, you know, you talk about how they handle conflict and they're like, I'm going to pull my gun out and I'm going to shoot. And they're 12. Mm. But to understand children the way that I do, right, to understand children at 12 years old, to have that language what I instantly know is that was a rough life. Yeah. yeah. That was some, it was some stuff going on because you're 12 and you are out and about when typically most 12 year olds are in school, but you're out and about, you know, in my line of work, but to understand and we give grace to parents. And I think it's different. I remember going into a school setting and they're saying like, all parents want what's best for their children. And I was the odd person now and they looked at me funny. I said, uh, excuse me, no, they don't. No, they don't. I can tell you why, because I worked in children's division. No, they don't. I literally heard parents say, I don't care about that child. I don't care what's going on with that child. Like I've literally heard parents say that. And so, again, we don't understand sometimes we don't take in other, you know, some of those perspectives and we yeah. get in a, in a model. And I say, well, how many people that this child has come and interacted, interacted with failed this child, right? Mm-hmm. How many people, right, didn't touch this child? enough didn't stay consistent enough with this child for his behavior for her behavior to get to this point right what's going on here right we ask a lot of times about about and i tell my young people the older you get unfortunately the less people care about your why why do you behave like this right people care the the older you get and i'm sure dr jones and past some of this like people just You know, they don't care that you were molested when you were eight years old, nine years old, because now you're outside at 32 prostituting. So they just Mm -hmm. they don't care about that no more. You're just going to go to jail. We're going to stop you. You're just going to do right. You're a terrible person. One of the blessings that I've had is to be able to see the sheet, the rap sheet of some of our young people, what's going on to them and then to see the person to see them still laugh about stuff, to see them still make jokes. Um, so, you know, you made some mention to it, Dr. Jones, but as people kind of go through life and you said you see people as children and I see the child, right? I, I've been seeing that child. And so my question, my viewing on the children is their environment around them and then the adults around them. Campfire has a model that says we need, children need two supportive adults. Mm-hmm. to really thrive in their passion, to really go past things and to not have two adults in your life from the time you're born to, you know, whenever they get there to make those choices. 
right? We forget that. They've been in school, so the teachers didn't see it. The counselors didn't see it. The the people around, somebody around those other family members, right, who knew what was going on but didn't intervene, right? And I tell people, you know, when we know what's going on, we got to be able to step out on faith or step out on whatever it is and be able to protect our young people. And sometimes that's not, sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. It's just it's what it is. It's just not yeah. going to be. As you're talking, Akeem, I'm, I'm realizing there's, there's the social, I don't know what the age is, but at some point it is no longer acceptable to give grace, right? Yeah. Like what age are you no longer worthy of being understood? At what age are you no longer due the respect as a human being to have someone understand that what has happened to you? has led to your behaviors, right? Somewhere between seven and 14, right? And certainly not by the time you're 32. By the time you're 32, (laughs) it's like, well, just, just, just come on, shape up. Like as though the nervous system was not impacted for life, the things that happened, right? And and so that kind of just brings us right back then to the trauma-informed care, which is where we started, which is something happens, it causes a response physiologically, emotionally, relationally, socially, spiritually, all the different ways, psychologically. And are we here to judge and punish and control? Or are we here to share, care, and heal? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. That's One thing that I really take away, and I was like this before I even got to it, uh, got into like learning trauma-informed caring, uh, is the question of what happened to you. Uh, people are really familiar with the ACEs. I grew up in an environment where I probably had all the ACEs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a lot of them, right? And my ACE score would have been extremely high. And so, and I know what my population around me looked like growing up. And so I'm always asking, hey, what happened to you? Because if it could have happened to me, I know it could have happened to you. And I know that was some, I know it was some tough stuff going through that. Right. And then there are experiences that I know nothing about. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't even imagine the impact. Understand what happened to a person. Again, we're talking about trauma informed care and we can address some of those things because it might not be physical. It might be they need some 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 spiritual guidance. They might need some emotional guidance. They might need some physical guidance, like different things. And so I'm um, always looking like what happened and how can we address it now? Right. Because we can't change the past, but we can change. We can change and try to change some of the outcomes in the future. And so Dr. Jones, our final question is, if you could magically tomorrow have everyone in the world start or stop doing one thing, what would you what would you imagine that could really transform the world? I would imagine that all of our wonderful, very positive, very warm mission statements are things that we all embody inside of our organizations. We, we, we embody them fully with our staff, leadership, everyone. I literally got chills. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Wow. Yes. So this has been a really, really good conversation. Uh, I feel like we're going to have to pick this one up again sometime because mm-hmm. it's just so great. I think we have a lot more to talk about. We, we only really skimmed the surface of, of some of these things, but we got some really, I think, powerful takeaways from this brief conversation today. Definitely. And the first really is, a. I mean, it's the thing we talk about a lot, but I think it's worth repeating over and over again, which is how do we use that trauma-informed lens really intentionally? And specifically today, we talked about, you know, giving everyone grace, no matter what their age is, what their circumstances are, uh, just remembering that as a human being, each and every person deserves respect, deserves dignity, deserves to be seen through that trauma-informed lens, uh, having asked the question what has happened to this person and responding with compassion in the face of that. Absolutely. And communicating their strengths, yeah. both inside in your own internal dialogue, or I guess that would be monologue. <laughs> right. And then with them. And I, I think mine's a others. dialogue. <laughs> yeah. No judgment. All right. <laughs> the second takeaway is that we must be intentional about counteracting bias. We all have it. And so some of the ways we can do that exploring other cultures, having those respectful conversations, knowing 
where you're similar and also acknowledging where you're different and um, being enriched by that. Watching those documentaries, you know, trying different foods. And then another way to do that is being intentional about how we give opportunities to lead, being open to the unexpected. Um, just because someone has the degree might not mean they're the best fit for the job. There might be someone with so much lived experience who has so much wisdom and we might overlook them if we don't let everyone apply and, and be uh, given the opportunity to lead. And then applying those trauma-informed principles in-house, in-house, not just um, towards those we serve, but towards ourselves and within our organization, which is really a piece of integrity, right? It, and it makes us uh, trustworthy and authentic. So that's the second takeaway. Which leads really well into our final takeaway, which is about intentionally uh, working in a countercultural way to remove roadblocks, uh, to address challenges in really unique ways, ways maybe we haven't thought of before uh, without the judgment or pushback around, well, we never have done it that way before, but just being really open to those unique opportunities that we can apply to solving some of the problems that emerge, whether we are leaders in an organization, looking at our staff and how we can provide more equity in time off, uh, in you know being able to work from home, that kind of job flexibility, providing unique benefits like Akeem was talking about roadside assistance as a benefit, you know, those kinds of opportunities. And then also in our in our service to others too. How do we creatively remove the roadblocks and challenges again through that trauma-informed, countercultural, counter-systematic <laughs> way that has uh, really kept division and oppression in place, being resistant to that and and moving forward again with compassion in the best way that we can. Uh, and so I think those are really our takeaways for today. There were more, I know, uh, but those are the three that kind of rose to the surface for us. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for being with us. Yes, thank and thank you. you. Thank you, Akeem. Thank you both for having me. This was great. Great discussion. You are most welcome. And um, keep up the good work that you are up to in the world. All right, listeners, we thank you for joining us for this episode. We want to uh, remind you that if you want to know more about the work of the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, you can check out the website. We also want to remind you about the Virtual Room of Refuge, where you can find a variety of support for your own well-being, access to our YouTube channel, and you can also subscribe there to our newsletter, Conscious Connections. Once again, thank you for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed.